This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Chris Gethart, comedian, actor, and author based out of New Jersey. He's also the host of the beautiful Anonymous podcast and the writer and star of the HBO special Career Suicide. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming and joining me. I don't know if you give a lot of advice or if this is something that you're a little bit newer to, but I'm really excited to um, directly run some people's lives for the next 45 minutes together. Yeah, I'm psyched to check it out. I mean, I, de- I get, you know, Beautiful Anonymous, I I do wind up giving a lot of advice. I don't know that I'm qualified to give anyone advice, but I'm always happy to try. Yeah. And I think a thing that I stress often, one of the nice things about this being an internet podcast is people can just listen to the advice and then hit pause and stop listening and go about their lives. Like, it's very low risk. You're not going to force anyone to do something that they don't actually want to do, which I think relieves a little bit of the pressure. I'd like to just give the listeners complete and total permission to disregard anything I say. Ignore all of this. I think that is a good place to begin. Yeah. Don't listen. Turn your phone off. Go outside. I'll just talk. Mm -hmm. Well, I will start uh, with our first letter writer who we don't think should listen to us and should, in fact, just do whatever it is that they feel like. Uh, And that's going to be where we'll start today. So the subject is fish or cut bait. I turned 30 not long ago and have recently come to understand myself as a trans man after a long period of questioning. I'm out to a few trusted friends, and I've been on low-dose testosterone for several months to help clarify things. Despite becoming more and more sure that transitioning is the right decision, I can't help but worry about all of the unknowns involved. What if testosterone won't work as well for me and I never pass? What if surgery leaves me with medical complications? What if I end up with a voice I hate and can't go back? What if I've overestimated my ability to roll with the punches? What if people react worse than I thought? I'm afraid that transitioning will only be beneficial to me if a certain narrow and uncontrollable range of possibilities are met, and otherwise I'll be better off staying as I am. But I won't know for sure until it's too late. I feel like I'm having to choose between two equally terrifying risks of regret, and I don't know how or whether to move forward. I love that I just like pause there, like, and now, yeah. Chris, you you talk to this young trans man. You tell him what to do. Sure. Whereas my immediate <laughs> reaction is just that I am uh, out of my depth uh, in a severe way and in over my head. But I, I, I mean, you know what jumps out at me right out of the gate is so much... And again, I'll put out the biggest caveat in the world right here, which is like, I'm a 42-year-old balding guy who's married to a woman in New Jersey raising my kid in the suburbs. I'm a Mm -hmm. very milquetoast 
human being by most people's standards. But as someone who tries to be thoughtful, empathetic, and has seen many friends from many walks of life walk many different paths, one thing I will say is it seems like so much of the process of figuring out who you are, who you want to be, how you want to live is about learning to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. And I have to imagine that anyone who's transitioning is probably due to a lot of societal pressures and and awful and unnecessary things, learns to suppress themselves and question themselves and doubt themselves. So I have to imagine that ultimately it is very healthy for someone to have all of these questions. I would have yeah. to imagine that all of these questions coming to the surface at once is a terrifying thing, but has to also reflect you're someone who's maybe not the first time, but to a degree that you haven't before saying, I'd like to take my own life by the reins and I'd like to start making some huge decisions about who I am and how I'm choosing to live. And that means you have to face down every bad 80s movie that was filled with jokes and every bad Chappelle joke today and every comment from your dumb uncles and every unsolicited conversation about gender from a person that comes out of nowhere that we all deal with all the time. So it's not shocking to me to hear that all of these questions have risen to the surface at once. I would have to imagine it would actually be a very, very unhealthy if they didn't. And I don't think that offers much advice except to say that if this wasn't happening, it would be in many ways more concerning, right? If someone was going, I'm going to transition and I have no elements of doubt or questions about how it's going to go or about the effects it's going to have, that seems to me to be way less healthy than having all of these things come to the surface. I got to say, you really set yourself up with giving us all low expectations. And then that was just like a beautiful meditation on like choice and living in the world and being a person. So uh, I just, you know, well done on that front. Thanks. I do my best. I, you know, I try to learn as much as I can and not put my foot in my mouth along the way too often. Although I mess that one up from time to time. What do you think? Well, you know, without trying to draw direct parallels, I think it's not unlike making another big life decision along the lines of deciding to get married or something. Like people will often both feel like, I'm taking the steps towards marrying this person because I'm really excited about it. And I also sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and think, what if we both run out of money? Or what if we get hit by a car and need round-the-clock care? Like, these are not thoughts along the lines of, I'm not sure I actually love my partner. I'm not sure I actually want to get married. But they are scary. And they do come up as this, like, big change approaches. And, And I think I was really struck by, this is all coming up in a way that I feel really affectionately, again, is kind of like, sometimes you you see people joke, like, I imagine like getting married and then, you know, 50 years later dying in my partner's arms and saying, but do you really like me? Or is this just like, just as a friend? Because this is all coming up while they're on testosterone. Like, this is like, I don't know, should I do it? And it's already like, the horse is out of the gate. Yeah, you're you know, speeding you're, on the Autobahn. You've got your yeah. foot on, you're, you're on the highway. Right. So I, I think it's fair to say, at least right now, letter writer, you're experiencing concerns and fears that make sense, but that aren't along the lines of, I hate the changes that low-dose testosterone is bringing me and I'm scared, or I don't want to transition. It's more like, 
I want to make sure that my transition is going to be seamless or that I'll pass in the way that I want to when I want to, rather than like if someone said, I can guarantee you that you're going to be like a super hot guy who everyone's going to serve for the rest of your life. You wouldn't turn that down. You wouldn't be like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not sure I want that. You're like, no, I definitely want that. I just want to make sure I'm not going to look weird. And I can both really understand and relate to that. And also, I think, especially when it comes to transition, there comes a point where you really have to let go of the thought that it's only going to be okay if I can be hot. Um, and Because if that's your only basis, then you're just going to get upset when you get old. Um, and maybe for you that means like 55. Maybe for you that means way earlier. But like regardless of whether you transition or not, you're going to get older and you're going to start to look like an older and older person. And so sometimes I think it's also really helpful to think like, I'm not going to necessarily be a smoking hot 80 year old. I mean, obviously I hope you are a letter writer. I hope you are one of those people who becomes models after they retire. You know, those people who just turn out to look amazing with silver hair and then just do like cool photo shoots for Dillard's. I want that for you. I do. I, I will say I echo everything and I applaud your hosting skills. You managed to just seamlessly finish your point, knowing your editors could handle it as my soon-to-be four-year-old son broke into the room and started vamping to the camera, and then his mom dragged him away as he was in tears. <laughs> Kudos oh to you on your professionalism. This is life son, happening. As my son broke into my home office. Um, that being said, everything you said sounds right to me. It sounds on target. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask your opinion on this as well of, to me, again, as someone who just tries to be empathetic, thoughtful, supportive, and not fall into all the traps of like hysterical dialogue. I sit here and I go, what's most important to me, especially, you know, not trying to be melodramatic, but you just saw I am the father to a young child. So I think about this a lot. We're in a new world. I think around it. I go, what am I going to say if my, if and when my son turns around to me someday and goes, you know, I don't think I'm your son. I think maybe I want to be categorized differently. I sit here and go, yeah. okay, what am I going to say? I go, the most important thing as far as I can tell is being able to thoughtfully think about yourself and observe yourself and present yourself in a way where you're not going to crawl out of your own skin or where you don't want to jump off a bridge. Like that's the ultimate thing is what do we have to do to make people who have an internal dialogue that they're being told to suppress feel like they can have that in a way that's healthy and open and honest where they walk away feeling like the most healthy, open, honest version of themselves. So If the person who wrote this letter goes, you know, at the end of the day, I think maybe I'm moving too fast, but the choices I've made so far have allowed me to see that and are allowing me to see where I'm going to land. Well, if you land in the place where you feel most yourself and you feel most healthy and you feel most like you can approach the world with your head held high and without apology, wherever you land is where you're supposed to go. And I I don't think there's anybody out there, you know, the sad thing is, There are a lot of people out there who want to go, no one should ever transition. And I think that if you can be a thoughtful person and read about it for literally 10 minutes, half an hour, you'll realize, oh no, there's, there are people in, there are people who, if they don't do this, they don't feel like they want to be alive anymore. It's not acceptable. But I don't think there are too many people on the other side of the fence going, you have to transition. Yeah, I think the people who are on the other side are going, you have to be able to embrace yourself and live in a world where you can accept and love yourself. Yeah, I think that's all really useful. I'll add just a few more thoughts. 
that are slightly more targeted because, you know, letter writer, uh, I also started transitioning shortly after I turned 29 or 30. And that's, uh, I've been on HRT now a little over five years. So, you know, I, I think all of your questions have real answers. And, and sometimes it can be really helpful to dig into that. Um, and also to try to find a balance between, obviously, you want to find supportive communities um, and and not have your self-worth rest on um, whether or not everyone served you on a given day. But you also sometimes have to let go of that desire to manage how everybody else sees you. And so it's a, a difficult balance, but an important one to find where you can live with yourself. Because I'll just say this. I started transitioning in California. Within maybe a year of HRT, I was getting sirred and he hymned pretty reliably, like 80 to 90% of the time. Um, and then I moved to New York about three years ago, and it was back down to like 90, 10 in the other direction. I was getting ma'am and she and her everywhere. It was hysterical. I mean, I didn't Weird. like it, but it was genuinely hilarious. I, I had no idea. And I, I still to this day don't know what it was other than just like, I guess whatever got me passing in the Bay Area doesn't cut it in the Big Apple. Um, and then it was like another year and a half before that started changing. And now I'm roughly back to like 80, 80, 90% he, him, and then like 10 to 20% either they are not quite sure or the occasional she. That um, is a fascinating look at the coast. Cause you would think New York, cause you know, I lived in New York for almost 20 years and you're on the subway every day with all types of people. You're walking down sidewalks and New York at its best is a place where you see an example of what it looks like when people just choose not to make this a huge deal and talking point and try to make money off of clicks about this as an issue instead of just people living their lives and going to work and going out and getting drinks with their friends. So I'm shocked to hear that in New York you found that that's shocking because I, I uh, as someone who I'm a Northeast guy. I, I'm really a Jersey guy, but spent many years in New York and do have love for the city. I'm like, I wonder I wonder also if there's something about the swagger of New York that is uh, part of it too. I wonder too. Yeah, to be clear, almost none of it was hostile. This wasn't like people clocking me as a trans guy trying to make me feel bad. This was like what got me read as either a trans guy or a cis guy uh, in the Bay Area more often got me read as a butch woman. In New York. So it was people being super friendly, super polite, people like at a store or a coffee shop, nobody like trying to make a point of it. Um, it just took a little bit longer. It it might speak to the relentless hyper masculinity that has a presence on the streets of New York. Yeah, to every bodega you go into, either. there's some guy and they're going like, oh, just like, and it's just maybe that works in California, pal. Yeah. But you're all soft there. <laughs> yeah. And again, like just could never have predicted it. Some of it changed with time. But it was not always immediately within my control. So I think the the question the question of like what if it doesn't work as well for me and I never pass? A couple of things. One, that might happen. I don't think it's really likely. I don't think that's super high on the cards. But I just want to like acknowledge that might happen. And you would have a lot of different options. Um, one of them would be to feel sad, you know. And again, that that sounds glib. I don't mean it flippantly. I genuinely mean you would be allowed to feel sad and struggle with that. And you might think, do I want to find more trans friends, trans support groups? You don't mention any trans friends in your letter, letter writer. So I just want to throw out a plug for sometimes they're weird and goofy, but I kind of love them. Trans support groups are great. Um, if there's not uh, like an LGBT center within a reasonable distance of wherever you live, there's a lot of them online. Um, it's just nice. Even though sometimes we're nutty, it's nice to be around our nuttiness. 
Uh, and it's nice to have some trans friends. And if you have that, you know, uh, other trans people in your life, you also then get to see other models like, well, what do other trans people do when they don't always pass or when they don't always pass in the ways that they want to or under the terms that they want to? And then there's also technical questions of like, do I want to change my dose of testosterone? Do I want to consider facial masculinization uh, surgery? Do I want to consider like picking up a weightlifting regimen? Do I want to make changes to my wardrobe and my hairstyle? Like not you have to adopt like a cookie cutter look to make sure that everyone who sees you thinks that's a guy, that's a guy. But there are also genuine steps that you can take to move you in a particular direction that you might avail yourself of. So those are some answers to that. Um, what if surgery leaves me with medical complications? You know, I think for top surgery, that's less likely, but it's also possible. There's a number of things you can do. There's a lot of support groups for trans people pursuing various surgeries. You can join those. You can talk to other trans people who've pursued those surgeries. You can talk to your surgeon about what to do and how to handle your um, complications. But yeah, surgical complications happen. And what happens is you get follow-up treatment and you recover and it hurts and it sucks, and you take medication, and you do it. You know, what if I end up with a voice I hate? That would suck. You'd hate your voice. I'll say I, I didn't transition, and I wound up with a voice I hate, so it happens, and you deal with it. I, I think that's such a good point, too, because sometimes we think, like, since we're not doing the default thing, it suddenly feels like everything is within our control and everything we have to answer for, but it's like, sometimes people just hate their voice, you know? And that's not necessarily something that only people who transition experience. So I appreciate your bringing that up. But yeah, you could do voice training. Uh, a lot of trans women do voice training. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. Like there is, you know, a, an entire like field of study about like altering the human voice, either through surgical or through training techniques. You could avail yourself of those. Um, you might find that you kind of love it. Um, you might be like, wow, I would have thought I'd be super annoyed by this like weird, buzzy, obviously on T voice, but I think it's super charming and faggy in a super fun way. And it might surprise and delight you, but you could do something about it if you wanted. If you worry about going bald, talk to your doctor about finasteride. This is what I tell every guy who's like, I want to start T, but I'm worried about going bald. Start finasteride right away. It keeps you from going bald. Does it then now? Then you won't go bald. Because again, Problem once again, solved. I could use that advice as well. Once again, talk to your doctor about finasteride. I'm serious. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I will. Yeah. Maybe because you can see yeah. this is becoming, this has always been a peninsula up here, but this is becoming an island. So I feel like even I'm getting advice out of this one. This is great. Absolutely. I know. I was so glad my, my first doctor who prescribed me tea was this really good looking trans guy. And I just thought he looked like the best anybody could possibly look. And he was like, and I, I'm very vain. I love my hair. I started it right away. And I just really appreciated that. That shared knowledge. And, you know, I, I guess I just want to say, like, all these questions and concerns make sense. I don't want you to feel bad about having any of them. There's all genuine answers about how you could handle them. And you are so not alone. And I think the more trans people that you bring into your orbit, the more you'll see so many different ways people respond to these things happening or the possibility of them happening. And, and I want to offer one last suggestion, which is I want to recommend the work of Sybil Lamb. Um, she's a trans writer and I'm thinking particularly of her piece, You Best Never Ever Transition. And just like a little background and context, um, you know, it was 2008. She wrote it shortly after experiencing a pretty violent hate crime and recovering. It's very provocative. Uh, it's very vulgar. I'm going to read a bit from it. I'm not going to use all the words that she gets to use. Um, and I don't want you to read this in the sense of like, oh, this is all like gospel truth. Like this is provocative, interesting, thought provoking, 
literature from a, a really compelling trans writer. But I love what she does with fear, terror, uh, surveillance, panic, desire to hide um, in her work. So uh, you can find her work online. You can also read her novel, I've Got a Time Bomb, which I really recommend. But just this bit. Do you really want to spend the rest of your life as a trans intellectual? I mean, sometimes I get invited to do a workshop at a conference, but it's been a while since that happened because people know I talk a lot of nasty, hateful shit and swear too much. And I never got a free train ticket or motel room out of doing a conference. Transsexuality is fucking bullshit. Same goes for trans guys. What the hell do they do all day? Work at free clinics and do computer programming? Is that what you want? Never transition. So I just wanted to throw that out there as well because I think it's a wonderful, like, brisk, interesting, compelling way of, of thinking about, like, trans fears. So Sybil Lamb, great writer. That's my last thought on that one. Do you have any final words for this letter writer before we move on to the second one? My honest uh, final words are this. As someone who once did an HBO special about my mental health and suicide attempts and someone who's read the facts and figures about how much that affects the trans community, what I can say from the bottom of my heart is just whatever questions you have, the most important thing is you just land someplace where you feel safe and happy and healthy and empowered. And if that's a full transition, that's a full transition. If that's you come to realize maybe you want to embrace who you are now, that's what that is. But I think anyone rational would say, go on the journey that allows you to figure out all those questions. And that allows you to, if I'm not trying to be glib about this, yeah, but just what's going to keep your head out of the oven. You know what I mean? What's going to, what's going to really do it. And that's, those are questions I've had to ask myself in my own version of it for a long time. And it's just shocking and sad to see how often it goes down that road. So all the self-doubt makes an endless amount of sense to me. And I've all I know is this person from their letter to the podcast that I don't even host, that you host. <laughs> and I just sit here and I go, what keeps you alive and happy and healthy and feeling like you're able to embrace who you are. That's where I want to see you land. Yep. And it's always scary to make a choice when you'd previously been questioning and just sort of relying on the default. It always feels like a much bigger responsibility. But just remember, you don't have to be afraid alone. Everybody who's ever started low-dose testosterone, and a lot of us like to start with, what's the smallest amount of testosterone you have, please? Can I cut it in half? Can I take some of it home in the <laughs> doggy bag? Um, a lot of us have started with those same fears. You don't have to... St- be afraid of those things alone. Find the other people who have started this process and find a community. And then the other is you can stop anytime you want. You really can. You do not have to do testosterone replacement therapy or any other elements of transition if you genuinely feel too terrified. And so I just also want to help you remember you're in the driver's seat. You get to stop if it's not right for you. That's always a good thing. Whenever you decide to do the right thing for you, that's good. So if you want to be scared but move forward, do that. If you want to be scared and pause, do that. And if you want to be scared and do something else, do that. And I'm glad our second letter explicitly calls itself low stakes because this just feels so like big and heavy and I really feel for our letter writer and I want nothing but good things for him. So um, it'll be nice to move into something that's like a little bit more I guess, I guess I would describe our next letter as like the lesbian George Costanza problem, <laughs> which it, it, it does plague the community. And I think that if there's anyone who should be tasked with reading it, it is me, a balding white guy. I'm ready. I want to hear it. 
subject of this one is life or wife goals. This is a low stakes question, but I'm curious anyway. My friends say I'm too picky when I date. I don't see the point in dating someone I'm not compatible with and expecting them to change. For example, I stopped seeing someone because she didn't train or pick up after her dog. The dog went to the bathroom all around the apartment on both carpet and tile. When he barked, she'd just egg him on. I love animals, but a filthy home and an untrained pet doesn't match with my values or lifestyle. Another partner had a few smaller issues, but they sort of compounded into a big difference. She doesn't eat vegetables or fruit, only bread, peanut butter, mac and cheese, and chicken wings. She was also obsessively interested in franchises like Harry Potter. And while I'm sure everyone is a fan of at least one or two things with a problematic creator, she doesn't really seem very interested in examining this. She also had particular views about women's body hair that I disagreed with, we're both women, and thinks women should all be hairless below the neck. I don't think should be, there should be any one rule for all women. I didn't tell any of these women they were wrong or try to change them. I just think a big part of dating is figuring out if you're incompatible and involves a lot of screening for little things that aren't necessarily bad or wrong but might add up to a big strain. I'm looking for a spouse I can build an equal life with, not just a romantic connection. I don't want them to raise their dog differently, eat vegetables, or stop liking what they like. Those things just don't match with how I want to live my life with a partner. My friends say I need to lighten up and give them a chance, but these things will still be incompatible in the future. Does it sound like I should lighten up, or my friends, or something in the middle? This was hard not to laugh and or comment along the way while reading. Uh, well, take the take the opportunity. Please comment now. I'm I'm torn. I'm torn. I feel a little crazy saying I'm torn because I sit here and I go, it doesn't sound like you're being picky at all when you say I don't want to be with someone who lets their dog poop all over the ground and roots them on. Not only like, <laughs> not only a lazy pet owner, but someone who sounds like they get maniacal joy out of the vet. Like that's, yeah. that sounds like a person where you go, yeah, I don't, I'm not. That's bad. I can't come over your house and I certainly can't cohabitate with you. Like we got to get out of here. Similarly, like, Saying that someone, you know, you, they described the diet that my toddler son eats. It's just all peanut butter and mac and cheese and and bread products. Like, yeah, that sounds like that sounds exactly like what a toddler eats. And then again, I have to imagine anyone who's all about Harry Potter. And again, I am married. I am a guy. I'm married to a woman. But I certainly think there's been very clear cut concerns with this creator. And I have to imagine, especially. If you are in the uh, L uh, L of the LGBTQ community, that you gotta ask those questions. Like that doesn't feel that doesn't feel out of bounds to me. Of like I, every time I go with a restaurant with you, you're gonna order chicken nuggets. Like, yeah, maybe I don't need to date you. But then it took right, a real. It's not a question of like, can you be a good or a worthwhile person? It's just like if I'm really interested in trying out a new oyster bar like once a week, uh, that might really run into trouble. Yeah, like I want to eat Indian food sometimes and you only eat uh, Lunchables. Like, okay, yeah. yeah, maybe you're not compatible. But then I will say it's almost a separate thing because it seems to me, if I'm going to be honest, like this person has cherry-picked two examples that of course we're going to agree with. But they do stress that their friends consistently say they've got to lighten up. And there is one line in the last paragraph, which is, I'm looking for a spouse I can build an equal life with, not just a romantic connection. So that suggests to me that there is a middle ground here, that maybe there is a middle ground between I don't want to be with the person who lets the dog defecate all over the carpet and roots them on, and your friend's going, you got to chill. Like I wonder what the other dating stories are here because 
those are two very extreme ones. But to go directly to, I'm coming out of the gate and I want a spouse. <laughs> that's a pretty hardcore approach to dating. Pretty hardcore approach. And it, it kind of fits all the old U-Haul jokes that the lesbian community has had to deal with along the way, right? Of like going, I want a spouse out of the gate. I can see that maybe there's a little bit of some cracks in the argument there, right? Of if you're thinking spouse on date one, maybe you do need to lighten up. It doesn't mean you need to marry the person who only wants to eat gummy worms and raisinets, though. I see both sides. Yeah, I, I can I can understand that. And I wonder in that situation if maybe the word picky is tripping me up. And maybe there's another word that's more useful to use here. I, I certainly, like you, uh, the, the dog situation, I would be running for the hills. I would look like, you know, when like Wiley Coyote accidentally runs too fast and he's just a dot on the horizon, I would be gone. And, you know, I think, again, with the Harry Potter stuff, it, I wouldn't want to date somebody obsessively interested in any like children's book series that's not even getting into like J.K. Rowling as like a weird transphobic billionaire who's like a nut now. I would just not be that interested in someone who felt that strongly about like I don't know such a like behemoth. If of, your diet like, is a kid's diet, if you already yeah. have a kid's diet, and, and then, then you, you want to also read kids' books all book the time, series, you know, I don't want to like make assumptions that like obviously there are some people who like have you know restrictive like issues, but. Yeah, for me, if I'm talking about somebody I want to share my life with, uh, adventurous eating and like a wide variety of interesting adult authors that they uh, are interested in reading, those would be things that would appeal to me. I would not necessarily be interested in this person either. The hair stuff, I I, I don't share that particular uh, sensibility, (laughs) but like assuming she wasn't going around to like women on the street and saying like, you need to go shave your knees right now, that feels a little bit more like there's room for compromise there. So I guess my question is, none of the individual examples that the letter writers given here sound like, man, you really missed out on a chance with the love of your life. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say, like, go back and try to get back with any of your exes. But I do wonder if, maybe if you do think your friends have some sort of a point, is it possible that sometimes when you're starting to get to know somebody, if they do something that you think might prove incompatible in the future, you lean too far in the direction of, I'm not going to say anything. Asking someone to change for me is like a futile exercise. I should just leave rather than, well, what if I just said, hey, I'm not wild about this. Would you be interested in compromise or change and let them respond? And if they're like, no, then we can break up. But if they say, oh yeah, I'd be willing to meet you halfway. Well, maybe then we don't have to just like walk away and never discuss it. So maybe being slightly avoidant rather than too picky would be a potential like place to grow or change here. I just don't totally buy that your friends are saying you're picky because you don't want to be with a person who insists that all women be pubeless. Now hand me a juice box. Like that's, (laughs) that's big. I don't buy that. That's why your friends are like, Hey, lighten up. Like that your friends are like, Oh, this person owns animals and lets them shit freely on the floor. Lighten up. I don't buy that. That's where that's coming from. And there's, few indications in there that maybe maybe there's another end of things too where you could chill out but again what do i know i only know the details that were told right right and it's you know it it can also be true that you can want a spouse do a lot of things right and still don't meet somebody that you feel that connection with because it's not just like a vending machine where you put in the right amount of change and you get what you want out of it it's also just chemistry right time, right place, happenstance, serendipity, 
other synonyms for randomness. So I, I don't also want to imply that if the letter writer just changes one or two things, she's going to guaranteed get like a perfect wife in the next two years because it's just also sometimes like a waiting game. But, you know, if you do have lofty goals for a, a partner, I think it can be helpful to lead with that. And again, that doesn't mean every first date you need to like roll up and say, I'm looking for a wife. If you don't think you can meet that job description, why don't we just call it a night? Because there is there is such a thing as coming on too strong. But I think it can be maybe useful to maybe a little bit earlier in relationships than you have been to say a little bit more about what you're really hoping for in a partner or what you really value, like if it's traveling together or certain ways of relating to animals or certain relationships to food or to, you know, blockbuster franchises. You know, bring that up a little sooner so that you can attract people who also share those interests and values. There's a bit of a catch-22 as well, right? Which is, if your approach is, I want a spouse, and I'm coming out of the gate with a spouse in mind, and that's what I'm looking for, lifelong partner, I think there's a lot of people in modern dating who might say that that's a little intense, and you might therefore only be attracting other intense people. But the other mm -hmm. intense people might not be intense in the same way you are. They're intense in their behaviors or their opinions. And when they don't match up, the intensity really shines through, right? Like you might be cutting yourself off from a lot of people who would be open to a more casual romantic connection. And those people might be a little bit more laid back and a little bit more willing to be blown away and eventually end up as a spouse. But if you're coming out of the gate going spouse or bust, I wonder if that might just attract other people with intense lifestyles or opinions. Not every time, but I wonder if that's how you're winding up with some of these particular dating stories. It's hard to right? Because I guess some of what I'm having a tough time with is like the friends are critiquing her approach to dating, which may or may not have a lot of merit, but it seems like at least the sort of underlying thing is if you want a spouse and you don't have one, obviously there's something wrong in your approach as to just, again, like it's, it's not a, it's not a carnival game. You can't guarantee that you're going to get someone that you have that feeling with and also like have compatible goals, values, plans for the future. Sometimes it's just, you can be doing lots of things right and you don't meet anyone who makes your stomach flip over. And when someone doesn't make your stomach flip over, it's a lot harder to say, I can find a way to work around the, you know, different dietary paths thing, or I can find a way to make a compromise. You know, I think that's part of it too, is like, I think you can sometimes plan for a certain type of partner and then certainly shared values are important, but sometimes you meet someone and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm, I'm down to compromise all of a sudden, like, not like my most important core values, but like, I could, I could live in Wyoming if I had to for you. <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, if you feel like your friends have a point, you can certainly try to bring things up sooner. If you feel like your perfect spouse is just going to, without ever having to have a conversation about it, intuitively want all the same things you do, it might helpful to to get a little bit down and dirty rather than just assume you're going to be silently on the same page all the time. But at the end of the day, if you don't want to go out with somebody again, I certainly don't think you should make yourself do it just so you can say you're working harder to try to find that spouse. Or you know what? Marry the floor pooper. Marry the person no. who lets the animals poop on the floor. <laughs> who cares? Just marry that person. Live your life. Live a life of poop ground down into the carpet by borderline feral beasts. 
if you have great health insurance and you don't mind being on antibiotics nine months out of the year because you keep coming in with weird infectious diseases, please don't marry the dog pooper. I'm really (laughs) upset about that one. That one really freaks me out. I hope she's well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know that I have any more thoughts for this letter writer. So maybe now is a lovely time for you to tell us a little bit more about the other show that you do when you're not giving advice here with me. What do people say to you when they write into you or call into you? How do you interact with your listeners? I feel like our, our shows in some way, there's some there are some kindred spirit aspects to it. Uh, my show started seven years ago. It was an idea that I didn't quite know what it was going to become. I, I, uh, my whole idea was I'll just tweet out a phone number at random times and we'll patch a person through and I'll talk to him for an hour. Oh man, patching a person through is such a great expression. Yeah, it's old school, right? Old school, like 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 an operator. Yeah. My only thought was let's have them stay anonymous so they feel total freedom and I can't hang up. If they want to hang up before the hour, they can. I can't. So I'm kind of stuck dealing with whatever craziness the world throws at me. They feel a lot of freedom because it's anonymous. And... You know, I came up in the sort of Brooklyn alt comedy scene. I, I I was known for doing some projects that had a, you know, had a call in element. My old TV show was on public access television. I figured it would be an extension of that. And mm-hmm. instead, what I found out almost immediately was when you tell people like, hey, I'll listen to you for an hour and I won't, I won't censor what you have to say and I won't judge it. People started throwing things at me. So we have, I thought it would be a funny show with a lot of people prank calling me. Uh, and there's some elements of that. Some episodes, people mess with me. But more often than not, people just want to get stuff off their chest. So hmm. I've had conversations that range anywhere from... I had someone who called up and said she has a group of friends and they dress up as pirates on the weekend and they all refer to each other by their pirate names and they have different functions on their ship. And she kind of feels more like a pirate as her real life. And then the five work days of the week, she feels like that's kind of where she's cosplaying, like putting on... And, I, and I'm like, this is hilarious and amazing and, and so interesting. We've had a guy who called up and he was telling me about what it was like working in computer animation. And then halfway through the call, he started laughing and his laugh sounded like a goose being stepped on. It was the craziest laugh wow. I've ever heard. And it just became about that. Some of them are as light as those two. And then, you know, I've had other calls where people have told me what it's like to be married to a man and find out uh, that he is being arrested, you know, find out that he's hoarding child pornography when he's being arrested mm-hmm. for it to find out, oh, you married this monster. You know, I've had that call too. I've had, I had a call from someone who called me from the waiting room of a hospital saying my daughter's cancer has returned and she's getting tested right now. And in a few hours, I'm going to know if her tumors are back and the way I'm killing time, one of those hours, I'm distracting myself by calling you to tell you the story of what it's been like to be a parent in this situation. So really runs the gamut, runs the gamut. Mm -hmm. And really my policy is I just try to be 
a very active, very good listener and give them a platform and get out of the way. And there's certainly some advice that's shared if they ask for it or if there's something that I feel like a burning desire to give, but I've kind of learned along the way that really the function that my show serves is to be a platform for regular people out there who feel like they have a story that they want on record and and maybe the world isn't accommodating to slowing down and giving them a big chunk of time to get that story on record. Well, my show's the one that aims to do it. So I'm really, really proud of it and and the community that's built around it. Do you ever get anybody who calls you back? Like, do you get repeat callers ever or somebody who can update you? We have. You know, we've done some follow-ups. There's been some calls where we had a call from someone who, it was really intense. Um, she called a few days before she was reporting herself for her federal prison stint. She started out as someone who was smoking meth and then started to help deal meth and it got bigger and bigger and she went to prison for that and she was very well aware of why that was necessary and the penance she needed to pay and we we did some follow-up calls with her over the years we've had a funny thing where you know we tweet out the phone number and we get thousands of call attempts um of course yeah varies depending on what time of day, if it's in the workday or not. I mean, we once did a live show where I tweeted it out and we got over 20,000 call attempts. So it's it's crazy. But we've had two or three occasions where a prior caller has gotten through again, just totally randomly. And in some ways, those are almost more fun than the intentional follow-ups to just be like, hey, it's me, the the lady who you... Uh, the lady who ran the, I, I teach the marching band kids in that high school. Remember me, <laughs> the marching band lady? I'm going to tell you now, two years later, here's what's up now. And uh, oh my gosh, those are very fun as well. Yeah. Well, that is fantastic. And uh, I love the idea of just like randomly somebody being able to get through to give you an update. Thank you so much for that. Um, do you feel ready now that we've gone through all that together to help somebody with personal growth? I'll do my damnedest. Great. So will I. So the subject of this one is personal growth under duress. Six months ago, my beloved partner, they, them, of nearly a decade, told me that they want to open our relationship. This has come up before, but it's always upset me, so they have previously agreed not to pursue it. Now, after a year of other big positive changes, they began hormonal transition, they moved to a different country for work and love it there, they feel that they can no longer suppress this. I'm doing my best to understand I've read books on polyamory, talked to my therapist about it, reached out to the few friends I have who are poly, even met my partner's first other partner. Out of respect for my discomfort, they've kept that relationship non-sexual, although it's definitely romantic. I've deconstructed all the anti-poly arguments I can think of, and I don't find any rationally convincing. I see my partner so much happier now, and I can't deny that our own relationship is stronger in certain ways than it was before. But I have absolutely no comparable desire to explore other romantic or sexual relationships, and I still feel so upset and so threatened all the time. I don't want to end this relationship because I love them so deeply and because all the emotional work I have to do, getting over feeling that I'm not enough, getting over my own internalized stigma and prejudice against poly relationships, is work that I would have to do if we broke up anyway, just alone, without my partner and best friend. I'm doing all the right things on paper. Why do I still feel so bad? Oh, man, I mean, with deep, deep love and compassion to this letter writer, my friend, you are not doing all the right things on paper. You are doing horrible stuff to yourself that I, I strongly encourage you to stop doing. This is the, a serious case of please stop hitting yourself. 
you know, you say, I've deconstructed all the anti-poly arguments I can think of, and I don't find any rationally convincing. Uh, how about I have no desire to do this, I'm unhappy, and I feel bad all the time. Um, like, this isn't just about, like, arguing about what types of human relationship are best and whichever argument sounds the most convincing, you have to go do it. This isn't a debate uh, about whether or not it's a good idea for some people to be in polyamorous relationships. This is uh, the right thing to do on paper is pay attention to your own feelings and you feel consistent despair, grief, loss, bereavement. This is not for you. And I, I really understand why it feels like I don't want that to be the answer because then I feel like we just have to break up and I don't want to do that. But I think you've already tried to avoid that answer and you see where it's gotten you, which is miserable and reading a lot of shitty books about polyamory. And um, I really want better than that for you. And I think you want better than that for you as well. And I say this as, you know, a goofy trans guy who lives in Brooklyn with my two partners. So I have nothing but warmth and joy in my heart for for polyamory, but you can't make yourself want to do it. You know, it's like, it's like Bonnie Raitt in reverse. I can't make you poly. I'm so sorry. That was so cheesy. But like, you can't just force yourself to want something you don't want by reading the right books. If that were the case, life would look very, very different. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. And I have very little to add, except I will say that in any relationship, people grow and people change. And sometimes, sadly, they grow in different directions. Or one person keeps growing in the path you were on and one person branches off. And, um, you know, I think it's particularly sensitive because something that I think it's very clear that the letter writer is mindful for is the letter writer is doing a pretty amazing job of being non-judgmental. of, yeah, my partner has changed. My partner continues to change. My partner continues to either change or open up about some things that were kept private before. And I want to respect that. And I don't want them to feel judged. I also think there's a particular sensitivity as well, right, with thinking about the whole idea of sexual promiscuity and how it ties into stereotypes and mm -hmm. and communities that get labeled as promiscuous in a way that it's not fair and it's not what it's about. And I think the letter writer is being so clear-cut trying to say, I'm not judging my partner for wanting to explore themselves and wanting to figure themselves out. Yeah. Doesn't change the fact that you don't want to take a bite out of that apple, you know? And yeah. I don't think you're going to take enough bites that make you like the taste of that apple. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at even the other things that both you and your partner have tried to make this work or even just more bearable, it doesn't look like it's moved the needle. So, like, you know, your partner has mentioned this a couple of times in the past that this is important to them and then tried not doing it to be with you. Uh, and then after a few years, they said, that's not working for me anymore. So so that stopped working. And right now, they're in a relationship that is at least currently non-sexual. And I don't say this in any way trying to be like dismissive of your partner's genuine affection for you and desire to like follow their commitments. I think odds are very high in the next couple of weeks or months, you're going to get a call or an email that says, well, we had sex last night. 
I'm sorry I didn't talk to you about it beforehand, but like that's just that does not look to me like a a stable long term accommodation. Um, and it doesn't sound like it makes your heart feel any better. It, it sounds like it's like, well, you know, I guess on paper, I appreciate the respect, but I still feel grief and I don't want this. And it's hard. It would be, it'd be easier if your partner was being a jerk or if you felt like you'd grown apart. It's so difficult to walk away from somebody that you love deeply. But I think the alternative is they will continue to, you know, now live in another country and pursue relationships with other people maybe while also adhering to a no-sex rule, but it doesn't sound like that's really doing much to make you feel better. And you just feel worse and worse and develop more pain and resentment. And then eventually when you do break up, it's because you can't stand them anymore. And I think that would be worse than walking away now and hopefully preserving the possibility for a friendship a little further a year or two down the road. There's another aspect of this as well, which is that I want to be extremely thoughtful in how I say it, but you two have been together and you've mm-hmm. lived a lot of life together and you've helped each other become who you are. You helped each other get there. And I'm sure there's a fierce protectiveness of your partner that you feel. I'm sure that being the partner of somebody, when you've helped them, you know, they're, they're, there's big positive changes like transition and, 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 and embracing polyamory. These are massive changes. These are tectonic plates shifting in the geography of your world. And I feel you, I'm sure you feel this fierce protectiveness and, and you don't, you make it very clear. You don't think they're a jerk, but there's something else to be said, which is relationships are about sacrifice. And if this person's not willing to sacrifice any of it, or feels that they can't live their truth without sacrificing any of it to help you find a Venn diagram where your comfort zones cross over, it is also okay to say that the partner is being a jerk if they are. Like, you don't have to protect them right. if they are being a jerk. And honestly, they don't even need to apologize for being a jerk as long as you both see it for what it is and and communicate about it soon enough that it doesn't turn really bitter. Like, it does sound to me like you're saying, like, I'm trying to learn everything I can to help embrace this other person's lifestyle. Well, you're you're bending over backwards to the point where you're breaking your back at a certain point. Are you being taken advantage of? Which might be really hard to think about when you've been through so much together and provided safe harbor for each other through so much of it. Right. And I don't know how much of what they're sharing with us they've made clear with their partner. So I don't know if their partner thinks we're close to being on the same page. We just have a few ground rules. Or if the other partner is kind of aware the letter writer is like really struggling and is kind of going along with some wishful thinking of like, well, as long as you don't tell me that you're full of despair, I'll pretend things are great. I could imagine either of those possibilities being the case. But yeah, letter writer, this is not like a situation where you are insufficiently educated on the subject or you have just too much like internalized stigma that you need to like divest. This is just a a question of pretty serious incompatibility. And I think something I really want to stress is like, it can be possible for somebody who's mostly monogamous and someone who's mostly polyamorous to have like a lovely functioning relationship, but they both have to be genuinely satisfied with whatever compromise they reach together. It doesn't work if you feel genuine loss, sadness, isolation, loneliness over the fact that your partner has another partner. And that's not something that you're going to be able to cure by reading more books or trying harder, or interviewing more polyamorous people, that's, you know, you need to, I I think you should be as 
thoughtful about investigating your own feelings and desires as you have been about investigating your partner's desires. You know, you've read all these books on their behalf. And this, I think, Chris, is what you were saying, right? Like you've been bending over backwards to accommodate them. What would it look like if you put that same energy towards like prioritizing and cherishing your own approach to love, romance, and relationships? I don't think that would necessarily mean like calling and saying, forget you ever knew me. Fuck off. I never want to talk to you again. Goodbye forever. But I think it would probably look like having a more honest and possibly painful, but maybe ultimately more productive conversation where you say, this is not working for me. This makes me really unhappy. And I hate the idea of breaking up because I care so much for you, but this is not sustainable. Like letter writer, what if you still feel like this two years from now and you've read 50 additional books (laughs) and you still feel this bad all the time? So many books. That's so many books. It's like one book every two weeks of you just trying to convince yourself. And it, also, if you're not polyamorous, that doesn't mean you hold hate in your heart for people who are. Right. Right. It doesn't mean you're prejudiced. No. And, and also, if you were with your partner as they went on hormones and transition, and then on the other side of it, you wind up breaking up, it doesn't invalidate any feelings you had about yourself or them or that process or being their partner during that process. It just means you landed in a place where you look around and go, kind of want someone who just wants to like live in the same country as me and sleep with yeah. me and only me. And that's just what I want too. That's as valid as them wanting something else. And it's, it's, is it weird for me to say it, it almost seems like all the, all, all the cultural implications of the specific types of things that we're talking about. They're such buzzwords right now. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. You're not on the same page in the same way that any couple can not be on the same page about any number of things that aren't buzzwords or things you feel fiercely protective of or feel like there's this investment in. And as always, I worry I'm not putting my foot in my mouth. No, not at all. And I would, I would, you know, blare a big air horn or, uh, you know, have my editor step in if I was like, whoa, 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 you're about to really like get, get in trouble here. I, I'm not, I, I don't want anyone to get caught out on this show, but I, I think that's just it. And I, that doesn't mean that your partner doesn't care for you deeply, but I, I really think, you know, 10 years ago, not to be all like we had faith, hope and jobs, but like 10 years ago, you two lived in the same country and were able to be at least in a workable compromise around monogamy. Now they live in another country and they're in love with someone else too. And I don't think that any number of books or support groups is going to change the way that you feel about that. And you don't have to. The, the goal is not everyone become polyamorous and, and read as many books as they can until they get there. The, the goal is just be honest about what you are and are not willing to try or once you've tried it, be honest about how it makes you feel. I think sometimes we just want to like postpone a period of discovery because we don't like the answer we got, you know, and and it's like, well, as long as I'm still learning and on a journey, we can kick the can further down the road and we don't have to break up. But this journey sucks, not because your partner's bad or doing a bad thing necessarily, just because you have your answer and it hurts and you want a different answer. So you're trying harder and harder to get a new one, but a new one's not coming. And it is absolutely fine to be open-minded, give it a shot and say, you know what? I think I'm really monogamous and I would like a monogamous partner and not just somebody who is willing to do monogamy, but who would delight in it and who would be like, 
friend, you just, that's the best thing I've heard all day uh, is being in a relationship, just the two of us exclusively. You, you couldn't have made me happier than with that suggestion. I think that's what you want from a partner. And that's a very reasonable and achievable and good thing to want. And you shouldn't be ashamed of it um, or try to get over it. Boom. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm really feeling for you, letter writer. And I know you feel bad. I hope you can share this with a couple of maybe trusted friends in your life. You don't have to break up with your partner tomorrow, but I do strongly encourage you to have one conversation with them where you're really honest about, I, I hate this. This makes me suffer. I am deeply unhappy. Um, not because they are going to be able to fix it for you, but because I think honest conversations are going to get you two to a place where you kind of have to acknowledge some tough truths um, and still find ways to love and care for each other and leave the door open for the possibility of not like, let's start being best friends tomorrow and I'll pretend I'm not devastated. I don't recommend that, but I think it is definitely possible to become dear friends with an ex when you've let some real time and water under the bridge go by. I also will just underline again as well. I think it's very possible to be an ally to polyamorous people without being polyamorous. And it sounds like you're not. And it doesn't mean that if you break, if if your partner has ever implied that you are somehow being closed-minded by not being on the same page about that, Mm -hmm. that doesn't, that doesn't feel fair on a basic level. Like you, yeah, you don't have to be polyamorous to say that polyamorous people are productive and positive members of society. Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't have to be a thing to support a thing and no one no one's going to doubt that you're a good 100%. person who has this person's back even if you're not down with living it. I think that's all the advice that I have in me today. Chris, thank you so much for stopping by and helping me sort through some of these questions and problems. Uh, I appreciate it immensely. And thank you so much for the thoughtfulness and and care of your approach. It was a joy. It was a pleasure. I apologize for everything, for any bad advice I gave. I'm sure there's many people who say the stammering nervousness of this guy married to a woman. Hopefully it read as... as, as, um, an effort to be hopeful and kind and compassionate and not just the complete bumbling marble mouth nonsense that it felt like. Also, I think it's great to be married to a woman. I'm married to a woman. I think it's terrific and I support it. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty into it. It's what works for me. It's It's what's working for me right now. So yeah, (laughs) there you go. That was a false goodbye because I do have one quick update to read before I let the rest of you go. Hi, I'm the letter writer from the unabridged high school crush letter. First, I wanted to say thank you for taking the time to read my letter, and I'm sorry it was so long. I really appreciated the insight, especially your thoughts about not keeping my boundaries a secret from other people. And I really appreciated your emphasis on not making my interactions with Jay something forbidden. Also, my jaw dropped at the that's a power and control fantasy part at the end. That resonated, and I'm still thinking about what to do with that. As for me and Jay, yeah, it did implode pretty spectacularly. She said she wanted to be together, she wanted to buy me a house, move to my city, that she's wanted us to be together for years, etc. We dated for two months, and then she cheated on me with multiple people, including her ex-husband. I've been talking to my friends and my therapist about it. I'm starting to feel better about the whole thing. And the urgency I had when writing that first letter has really mellowed it out. And I agree that I do struggle with communicating how I feel to others. 
especially with Jay. Even now, I feel like I never want to tell her that she hurt my feelings. I just want to be this calm, cool, collected person who's unaffected. As if admitting to being hurt is some sort of character flaw. It's something I want to work on. I promise my life doesn't usually sound like the plot of the L word, and I can't wait to be 36 with no problems. Thank you again. Oh, letter writer, thank you so much for that update. I just wish I could give you a hug. I both am so sorry you had to go through that. And I'm also kind of happy for you. Sometimes it's really great and awful to have like a really dramatic reunion with someone who you were hugely into in high school and have it kind of tear your life apart for a few months and then figure out what you're going to do with the wreckage. Um, I'm really sorry she came in so hot with all the promises and then immediately was like, ah, I'm going to cheat on you. And I do wish you the best. I hope that you can find a way to let Jay know, even if you do it in a cool and calm, collected way, you know, the way that we ended our relationship really hurt me and I need some space. That would be a a good thing maybe to say to her. But I already gave you a bunch of advice last time, so I'm not going to give you any more now. Just thank you for the update. And I hope the two months of, you know, crazy good sex with your high school sweetheart uh, was worth the pain of how it ended. And I hope that when you turn 36, you never have another problem again. And that goes for everyone listening. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. You just don't have an appreciation for what people are going through to get to the level of not talking to their parents. That is not something that someone makes a choice to do lightly. No one just, like, decides that their parents pissed them off or they didn't like the way that they talked to them on one phone call and, you know, we're going to cut off all communication. That's just not... Shoot, I'd even be happy to concede. I'm sure every once in a while somebody does it, like... I'm sure that there are occasionally just like really ungrateful, selfish kids. Oh, Um, yeah, totally. But I don't think it's that common. And I think that it clearly doesn't sound like that's what's going on here. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.